0: All right, good to see you this morning. Um, I, I heard that I shortchanged the first service last week, so I'm gonna do my best to make up for that. I, I was told that I was just way more excited about the sermon in the second service than the first, and, and maybe that's just because I, I didn't have enough caffeine going, going on or some other reason, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be excited about the message this morning, and, uh, and, 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 and I really am, so that's not me just pretending. I, I'm super excited about the... Um, not just this message this morning, but about the series as a whole. <clears throat> I hope that if you've been with us the last week or two and then again this morning, that you're beginning to see the journey we're taking this year. If you haven't been, let me just fill you in. Um, the sermon series this year is, uh, is really a, a, um, a, a way to approach the Bible that uh, helps us comprehend the little pieces we read throughout our journey. And I, so I don't know if you're a person who's ever struggled with comprehending what you're reading in a story in the Bible and how it fits in, but our hope is to really lay that foundation of the story so that if you're reading in Exodus or the book of Hebrews or Jonah or Jude or Malachi, anywhere in the scriptures, you have some sort of bearing uh, where, as to where you are in the story. And, uh, and so I was thinking about, for me, how helpful that is. Um, I used to do a lot of hunting um, before I got married and had kids. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, and, and that's not, I love my, my kids, but, uh, I just, I'm just out of time. So, um, but one of the things that is super important to me before I go hunting on a piece of property is that I've had a chance to walk the boundaries and kind of know where things are. Uh, before I was, before I would, you know, squeeze off a round of, you know, out of a gun, I want to know what's beyond that tree, that hill, where am I, you know, who else is out here, that sort of thing. And so, um, there was a time where, um, I went on a day hunt, and, uh, and, and uh, this, uh, this gentleman took me with him, and so I'd never seen this piece of property, and we get there at 5 a.m., it's dark, and so we just know how to get to the deer stands, and, and, I, and I just remember that morning as the sun coming up going, I have no idea where I am on the face of the earth, and, uh, and I think that's how we are a lot of times when we step into the Bible. Uh, we don't really know where the boundaries are, the fences are, what's beyond that hill. And so the hope for this series is really to map out uh, the, the Bible in a way that you can navigate and you understand where you're at in the story so that after reading, you can better place yourself in the story and know where the story applies to you and better yet where you apply to the story. So we started that last week. And so this week what we're literally going to do is open Genesis 1. We're going to open the story And uh, so that's where we'll be in just a moment. I'll give you a chance to turn there. I've got a few announcements for you. Uh, Genesis 1 is where we're going to begin this morning. Uh, One, this Wednesday night, two things going on that are incredibly important. First of all, women's ministry kicks back off for the semester. So uh, the women's ministry is up and running third Wednesday of every month through May. And, uh, and so that begins this Wednesday night at 6 p.m. in the kids' building. Ladies, if you have been before, uh, you know it's a great time. It's sometimes hard to navigate your schedule to get here, but once you get here, you know it's awesome. Those of you who've never been here want to extend an invitation to you. I won't be there because I'm not a woman, but, um, but I can tell you this. If you'll make the time and show up, even if you don't know a lot of folks, you'll be blessed to come in and be greeted and get to know some of the other ladies in the church and, uh, and also, it might be a good time to invite a friend who's never been. So this Wednesday, six o'clock, Kids Building Ladies. Second thing is uh, really more of an administrative thing. And so if you're not a member or regular tender here, just tune me out for a second. But just so you guys know, uh, we're in, um, in hot pursuit of an administrator for the office. Um, I've announced a couple times, Lindsay has uh, been afforded the opportunity to spend more time with her family and doesn't need to work as much anymore. And so we're looking at replacing Lindsay, our office administrator, and, uh, and God led the elders to a decision early on to look outside the church uh, for that position, just receive counsel and had a number of reasons why that was, seemed like a good idea. So that's the pursuit we're taking. And, uh, and so this, uh, all that to say, this past week um, uh, started interviewing some one-on-one interviews with some potential candidates. Uh, every interview was amazing. God has sent us some fantastic candidates for this position This Wednesday night, our leadership team and our elder body will be uh, conducting the second interview with one of these candidates. I would ask that you would pray very specifically. Here's why. I expected last Friday for it just to be clear uh, which one of these candidates was supposed to go forward. And they're all so awesome that it's not. And so I sent them all an email and just said, listen, I'm going to take the weekend to pray uh, and see God's face. And so I'd ask for you to pray uh, for me, for the elders, that um, by tomorrow, hopefully, we would have some direction for which one gets to come to the interview. We've set up the interview, and we know some awesome candidates. We just don't know which one it's going to be yet. So um, pray with us, but be aware that God is moving, and, and it looks like he's going to secure that position uh, pretty quickly. Uh, any questions you have on that, you could direct those towards an elder or leadership team member if you know who they are. Be glad to fill you in on all that. So there's the announcements um, for you. We're ready to get started. Genesis chapter one. And, uh, and so if you had the opportunity to come last Sunday night and spend some time with Daniel, really submerged in the Genesis creation text, it was very uh, intriguing, helpful, enlightening, even comical at times. Uh, and so just if you weren't here, there was a video he asked me to play of this. It was like a one minute clip of this guy talking about how Uh, The universe is in us, and we're in the universe. But I didn't know which clip it was, so I'm up there, and I load the clip and come walking down the stairs. By the time I get down here and look up, there's a lady dancing to some weird music. And I was like, whoa, should have previewed the video. So it was a fantastic time of entertainment last Sunday evening if you were here. Uh, But but Daniel did what we won't have time to do on Sunday mornings, and that's really spend time in the days of creation, uh, how science uh, relates to our biblical understandings. So we're going to pick up with the story. And, uh, and look at uh, what that has to do with us um, right from the beginning. So, the series title is The Coming Kingdom. And we're understanding that that's a, that's a fairly accurate title for this story. It's one of many you could place on the Bible's story. But um, essentially, there is a coming of a kingdom that almost everybody in the story is waiting on. And uh, it begins, though, with the creation of God's kingdom and setting the story in motion. So Genesis 1, really Genesis 1 through 4 is, is, is really introduction. Uh, Genesis 5-1 really launches more into the narrative. And then at Genesis 12, it really gets specific into laying out like we would read another story. Okay? So this is introduction. If you were to open a book, you know how a book has an introduction. This is where we're starting in the story, Genesis 1. Now, the days of creation uh, tell us some things about ourselves and tell us some things about the story. First of all, um, human beings are set apart in the story, okay? We're going to learn quickly that we're not the hero or the main characters of the story. But compared to the rest of creation, human beings have a special place in the story, And there are a number of reasons why this is true. Just as a literary, uh, uh, just taking a literary approach, if you looked at the creation story, each day gets a certain uh, amount of attention by the original author, okay? And so uh, day one, day two, day three, and and they get a certain number of words. When you get to day six, the creation of human beings, you get more than twice the amount of words describing what's going on. So much that... You, chapter 1 is really the, the panoramic snapshot of creation. Chapter 2 then comes back and, and looks again through more of like a telescopic or a microscopic lens at day 6. All of chapter 2 really is explaining day 6, the creation of human beings. So we know that just the way it was written, the author's saying this is an important part of the story. Human beings are set apart. Now we know just from earthly experience that human beings, though it's sometimes hard to tell are set apart from the rest of creation. Uh, here's some, just some different ways that you may have noticed. Um, uh, human beings make choices, okay? Uh, you might argue that, um, that other animals make choices, but literally contemplating cause effect, if I do this, this might happen, those type of choices, not this dog food smells better than this dog food, but like literally contemplating choices, okay? And so uh, that's one of the things we know sets us apart. We, um, we, can, we can, now I'm going to use this loosely, we can create, okay? We can't take nothing and make something happen, but we create. We take what God has created and we form it into things. Artistically, we, even administration is a creation of putting things in order and system. So we know that we are able to kind of create and systemize and put things, to pull things together. Um, we rebel. Now, we rebel um, different from how you might argue an animal rebels. If you've ever trained horses, horses will rebel against putting a bit in their mouths, uh, but not to the level and the extent that human beings rebel. We rebel for, for, for uh, self-centered, self-glorification, um, very arrogant reasons. Not because we just don't like bits in our mouths. It's part of it. But we, we have a rebellious tendency to ourselves uh, and also the ability to feel like, shame and guilt. You can, you can instill fear in an animal, but the idea that I've done this action, now I feel shameful for it, is inherently human. And we could just go down a list of things that you know, right, set us apart from, from creation, the rest of creation. However, when you get to the creation narrative, and we'll pick this up in verse 26, I want you to see something that really sets us apart from everything else that's happened day one through five. In verse 26, the very First phrase says, Then God said, Now that's not new, is it? He's been saying, Then God said, Let there be, let there be, let there be. But he says something different here. Here's what God says that's different Let us make man in our image. Now, what's happening here is God is, what theologians will say, having a conversation with himself. He's contemplating the creation of man. And so, God's not just saying, Let there be light. Boom, there's light. Let there be human beings. Boom. He's saying, let's consider what we're doing here. Let's talk about the purpose that we're going to intrinsically place in this next creation. Let us. And so God is having a conversation with himself, which is really hard for us to understand. But as you read the whole story, God is presented in the story, is a Trinitarian God. Okay? Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But just in the creation account, you've got, in the beginning, God created and then, and then just shortly after, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, okay? And so we have already had this idea of a, of a, a plurality God. Not that there is more than one God, but that God is under, to be understood in plurality. You get to the Gospel of John, he says what? Oh, by the way, Jesus was in the beginning, and he was with God, and he was God, and all things were created through him. And so we understand that there's a Trinitarian God created. Now, that, there's a reason why we need to know that, when we get to our purpose in, in reflecting his image, okay? So, so God is creating, let us, so he's, he's really spending more time in the purpose part of this next creation. God is, you might say, consulting himself as he creates man. And so God says, let us then make man in our image after our likeness. So we've got time to spend here. Very, very... Um, broad when you begin to, to think about what it means to bear the image of something. Um, but, but as you read the rest of the story, you're going to see there's some very specific things that are being communicated here, okay? Now, Genesis is part of the first five books of the Bible, the law, the Pentateuch. this, this is the writings of Moses is what we understand. Um, we can date the, the, uh, the authorship based on Moses, based on when we understand. Moses lived. He, was, he had to be alive to write it, right? So we're looking at like 1300 to 1500 BC, there's some debate on exactly when, but we understand it's about that time period, okay? And so we also understand what else is going on uh, in, in humanity at that time period because we have other understandings of civilization and what's going on around Moses and the Israelites and the Egyptians. It wasn't just the Egyptians and the Israelites, I mean, you've got empires forming in humanity, Okay. And so some of this language might be helpful for us to also understand what would take place in the, the, the uh, civilizations and cultures around. Kingdoms were beginning to form, and kingdoms were beginning to conquer. Okay, so it wasn't just human beings in little tribes and villages. They were beginning to collect themselves into cities and big cities and empires and kingdoms. And, and so you have the, the Egyptians, uh, right, Pharaoh, and these other um, civilizations forming together. Okay, so one of the things that um, the the kings would do um, in, in the kingdom because they didn't have uh, Fox News and CNN and, and media to kind of display on their behalf. They couldn't do these news briefings or um, State of the Union addresses. They had to somehow, right, as they began to expand, they had to display their dominance in the places that they conquered. And so what they would do then a lot of times, and, and this explains what we see in history, is they would make, have statues made of themselves okay? And, and the statue, depending on the king, would also represent maybe even their deity, but, but nevertheless, at the very minimum, it, it, it displayed their image, and they would have statues placed around the kingdom. Make sense? You conquer a city, and to display that you've conquered that city, you would have a statue made of yourself and have it displayed so that the people were just reminded of you. Uh, just, just a very practical thing that kings would do. And so for this audience reading this uh, literature from, from Moses as he's explaining the, um, the creation account, then it begins to help us understand then who we are in God's kingdom. Now, the New Testament will, will back up this, this claim as well, that you and I literally are going to be created as image bearers in the kingdom. So something about the way we were designed and created is to bear the image of the king. Now, um, Paul will use the word Ambassador. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Paul says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. The same thing. We're image bearers. As we walk the earth, we represent a king and a kingdom. Right? We're ambassadors on his behalf. Uh, to help us understand this even more, um, uh, Jesus is, uh, is asked about paying taxes and paying the tithe. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus responds... Uh, show me a denarius, so like show me a quarter is what G- how Jesus responds, and they show him a quarter, and he says what? Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said Caesar's, so it's a very similar wording, so then that coin represents Caesar, it has this picture on it. So somehow we're beginning to understand that in the purpose of our creation, we are to be those image bearers for the king, all right? And so somehow in us, and we'll talk more specifically how that's displayed, that creation is able to look at us and see him. We're created in his likeness to reflect, right, his identity. Now, there's another way to look at this idea of bearing the image, and this is one that we've used before. Um, Back in August, we did a um, just a short version of this series, we were talking about being image bearers. And I had, I had a setup over here with four different things. I had a computer monitor and talked about how that could bear the image of something else. I had a painting, how the painting bears the image. Um, we talked about even a window. You can look through a window to see an image. But the one that I thought best fit what I think is being uh, discussed here is a mirror. So I have a mirror. Um, this isn't mine because it's pink and it has bling, but it's also for makeup, which I don't wear. Um, so I don't even know how to open it. <laughs> Praise God. I'm going to try. Okay, there we go. So um, I had a full-length mirror up here, and I was talking about, and I even used the light, which I'm going to do in a minute, how we reflect who God is and to the world around us and that sort of thing. But um, I, I chose a smaller mirror because I don't want like, to get too carried away thinking we've got to be these huge, big mirrors. Like even the smallest of small can participate in what we were created to do. So. I'm going to clean it up a little bit, check my teeth, look good. All right, so if we think in terms of statue, that's one form. The problem is we're not static, right? We're not fixed in one position. We live and we walk through life. Not only that, our ability to reflect his glory, is it, it changes. There's some days where we're doing a better job than others, right? So we're not always this perfect ambassador on behalf of Christ. And so I think in terms of a mirror, how a mirror reflects an object. Now, you can do two things. You can look at yourself which is one of the ways we tend to use our image-bearing, reflective nature to look at ourselves. But you can also reflect things. So, like, if I take the light, I'm going to try to hit you in the eyes for a brief moment. Okay, you see that? All right, all right. So I can actually reflect another object to you, but I can, now, if that light up there were a person, I could reflect you back to that object, too, right? It's kind of a two-way street, all right? So when I think about this understanding of us being image-bearers in the kingdom, it's not that we're static statues, Positioned in life not to move, right? And people see us and they see God, but that we're more, we're moving around. And at times we're doing a better job of reflecting who God is than others, right? And so here's some things about um, our role as image bearers it is a two way street. One is the Bible calls us a royal priesthood. So we begin to understand our place in the kingdom is to reflect to creation a king, a royal king. That God has intrinsically placed on His created people, you are to be My people, a royal priesthood, reflecting who God is to creation. Now, think about that. Here's some—here's some, just a, a few examples, as we'll see in a moment. Um, specifically, our dominion, our stewardship over creation. Whenever we bring justice to creation, we're, we're reflecting who God is to creation, right? Whenever we bring love and mercy and grace to creation some way, we're reflecting God to creation, right? It's not that we're merciful people. It's that we know a merciful God, and we're standing in such a way with our lives that we're able to reflect mercy to somebody or something. Does that make sense? So that's part of our role. Um, so there's, there's, a, 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 there's a, a direction for, for uh, our image-bearing to go where when creation looks at us, they're able to see our King. As a reflective mirror. Now it goes back the other way as well. In uh, in uh, in Luke nineteen, uh, Luke records Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what's called the triumphant entry. It's the beginning of that Passion Week. At the end of which is where he dies, goes to the grave, and resurrects. So we're back at like Sunday of that week, the beginning of that week. He rides into town, and his disciples, and then other people are beginning to worship him and hail him as king. And, uh, and, and the, uh, the Pharisees are, are, are uh, a little upset, and so they're trying to put a damper on things. Um, and so Jesus responds to them. This is in Luke 19, uh, verse 38. Here's what they're saying. They're, they're singing. They're saying this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they're doing a really good job right here at reflecting God, right, to the people around them, to creation around them. And so the Pharisees want to put a damper on this, reflecting the glory of the king. As they're saying, this is the king, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, so they go directly to the one that's the king, being pointed to as the king, and say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Essentially what he's saying is, tell your disciples to quit reflecting that. And this is how he responds. I tell you, even if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, what's he saying there? That creation itself is is reflecting the glory of the king. These people are the mouthpiece on behalf of creation. Now, think about that. The stones really can't cry out, can they? And if we look hard at stones, we can see they're beginning to reflect the glory. But you have been given a specific position between creation and the king. Think about that. The glory you see in creation can't speak, can't articulate, can't say to God, you are good. And you and I have been given this unique position on behalf of creation to articulate what the Grand Canyon is saying. To articulate what the majesty of the mountains is trying to say. To articulate what the universe is screaming out. You and I have, we are set apart in creation with this ability to use our words much like God. You see this reflection two ways. One, we reflect to creation. Here's your purpose. Here's why you were created. Here's the king. He's glorious. He's just. He's merciful. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind. And then back to God, then we speak on behalf of creation, reflecting back to God. And this is like in Revelation, you read, worthy are you, God, to receive what? Glory and honor and praise. What are we doing? We're speaking on behalf of creation, reflecting God's glory back to him. And this is intrinsically designed and placed in the creation of man. This is our role, okay? It's not wrong to ask the question, why was I created? What's the purpose of man? Here's where we get derailed. When A, we begin to think to ourselves, I get to make up my own purpose and my own destiny. And so really, I'm going to come up with my purpose, and I'm going to live it out, okay? It's just not true. You can try that. It's part of our rebellious nature, okay? Or B, God has this long list or this big menu or this buffet style of purpose and you just come up to the buffet and pick one, whatever looks good to you. Your purpose can be uh, chicken fried steak and your purpose can be, uh, right? And so we, we tend to approach God that way. I'm gonna find my purpose in life. He has a specific purpose just for me. Once I latch hold of it, nobody else can have it. And from the very beginning, God says, no. I created you collectively with one singular purpose, which leads us back to the Trinity understanding of our our nature. Now, why is God speaking with plural words? So go back to the text, verse 26. God said, let us, that should grab your attention, God's speaking to himself in plural terms. Let us make man in our, again plural, image. After our, plural, so it's not like the author messed up here, right? This is very intentional. The Bible wants you to understand God is looking at himself in plurality. And let, look at this, let them, now he's talking to, uh, to about us in plural, right? So from the beginning, there was meant to be not just more than one. We're going to see there was meant to be a sense of plurality in our lives, let us make them in our image. Let, uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all creation and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. Singular. In the image of God, he created him. Now look at this. Male and female, he created them. So somehow... What we're understanding is that male and female creation is to reflect the plurality of God. So here's, here's what's going to develop for us. And we're going to get into this next week. We're going to be in Genesis 2, the real focused in part of, of, of God creating man and woman and how that uniquely reflects who God is. Okay, But what we're understanding is that from the very beginning, man was, was created to dwell with men. It was never a lone ranger creation. It was never, man was never created to be alone. Man was created to live in community. Okay? And I don't know that, that there's a psychologist, there's a therapist, there's an anthropologist. There's anybody on the face of the earth who would disagree with it. Now, some people like to isolate themselves, but it's a very, very small number of people, and it's very unhealthy, we would say, over time. We were created to live in community, in plurality. That we best reflect the glory of God when we're together, okay? Now, this plays out, um, we'll see, in family, right? Family was meant to stay together up until it's time for kiddos to leave the house and marry and start their own families. Like, it it never feels right. It's never good. It's never positive when family does this, right? We We would say, yeah, we agree with that. Absolutely. We were meant to live in community. The church itself displays that. Right? We don't just show up on Sundays and we begin to kind of recognize one another. We're supposed to be living our lives intricately and intimately together. Paul will argue that over and over again about the church. You're supposed to be one, one body. One, one, whenever the world looks at you, when creation looks at you, they're supposed to see a oneness about you. You see how we're beginning to reflect the, Trinitary, the Trinitarian understanding of who God is, this plurality, that when people see us, they see one, so that when they begin to see God, they see one. We were intrinsically, inerrantly, from the beginning, designed for community. Now, understand this is before the fall. Some people will say that because of the fall, now we've got to live together. God creating Eve for Adam was not because he was lonely loneliness is a result of the fall okay so before the fall perfect creation we were meant to live together in some sort of community you see how god's building a kingdom for himself from the beginning the people of his the inhabitants of his kingdom were supposed to collect themselves together to bear the image of the king now let's look look together what that means for us the need for community is not a, a result of the fall it's not because of sin Actually, sin begins to unwind community for us, and we'll get to that next week. So God is creating in us this, this, uh, this image-bearing quality that when people look at not just me, so here's what that means practically. When I, when I read this, I'm not supposed to think of myself as an individual reflection of God. I'm supposed to think in terms of in my relationship with my family, in my relationship with you, and, and at the climax of it all, in my relationship with my wife, Hallie, this, when, when we are most unified, God is most glorified. That's when we most begin to resemble and reflect who our king is. Okay? So don't think in terms of you as individuals. That's why I don't like the statue metaphor. As individuals, now you can do that. You can reflect his glory. But we best reflect his glory in our unity. And that's what sin is going to undo to leverage between us and try to divide us and separate us and, and create hostility so that we don't come together to reflect his glory and community. But there's a second part of that in that God gave us a mission. And so we, we read this in verse, uh, let's just go back, go into 28 and read the rest of this because it's going to be more specific. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, so here's their mission, So the them we know as a man and woman because the first thing he's going to say is be fruitful and multiply. We're going to get to that next week. So just so you all know, we're going to come back to the relationship between man and woman. We won't spend too much time there. But their mission was to go to advance the kingdom through multiplication, to have kids. And then for their kids to have kids and to begin to take that image bearing and and spread it out as a blanket around all of creation. And so there's this advancement of the kingdom and then this specific, to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed. So the language is beginning to speak about our dominion, our authority over creation. Okay? And in a minute, we're going to get to distortions of this. But, but before the fall, man was created to have dominion, to steward Everything else that was created. There's no doubt about this language. We were placed over in authority, and you might even argue in in, in, uh, significance, over the rest of creation for a specific purpose. To display the king. And then it goes into all the different details of um, how we've been given every... Plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. We've been given every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Now, we're going to get into distortions, like I said, but um, here's, here's what we understand in the, in the original creation, that man was create, created to be in relationship, in community, right, and to have dominion over and stewardship over things. So let me give you some distortions and see if this is how you see the world today operating. So here's what, how it's been distorted. Man has taken dominion over things and, and exchanged that for dominion over each other in pursuit of relationship with things. Is that not true? are supposed to be in relationship with one another and have dominion over things. But we've traded that, and we've, we work hard to have dominion. I mean, even in the most... Basic ways as we pursue the corporate ladder, we're pursuing dominion over somebody else, authority, leadership, a boss role. And so our dominion over people, so what? We can have a relationship with things. Is that not true? You see a complete reversal of this created order. Instead of a relationship with people and having a dominion over things, it has become a relationship with things and dominion over people. Uh, Paul Tripp says it this way, Rather than loving people and using things to express it, people love things and use people to get them. i say that again. Instead of loving people, that idea of community, loving people and then using things to express our love to one another, people love things and we use people to get them. It's so very true about the human experience today after the fall. And so when we think about distortions of what God's created, it's not that, that things just got derailed a little bit. it's that things got completely reversed. And so the world we live in is not right now is not supposed to feel right. There's supposed to be a sense of something's wrong with the world we live in. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to like the news when it comes across these you know, the chaos, these mass school shootings, terrorism. Um, these, these, you know, tyranny, mass genocide. But that, those, are, those are the indications of what we're reading is true. That creation has been distorted. And, and man is now seeking dominion over other men in pursuit of what? Glory for himself and, and a possession of things. Now here's most, very few of you have ever tried to take over a country. Okay, so let me just share some practical ways how that plays out. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't work hard. Work hard. However, your pursuit of position in your career and your job, you've got to ask yourself, why do I want this? Is it so that I can show everybody underneath me that I've achieved uh, 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 this position, this stature, I'm I'm smarter, I work harder, I'm more likable? What is your motive for that? Genesis 3, we're supposed to work hard after the fall. You work hard, you're probably going to get promoted. Okay, But working hard because you need to work hard is different from wanting to thrust yourself to the top and essentially living for your own glory. But let me give, okay, and so that's something that some of us struggle with. Not everybody struggles with that. Some people are content. I'll just be the, uh, you know, the assistant. I never want to be at the top, okay? However, I bet everybody in the room struggles with some level of busyness. And I'm going to share with you why I think busyness is the undoing of what we were created to do, Okay? So, first of all, how do you define busyness? Business is, A, I don't have enough time to do all the things, and B, I say no to a lot of really important things I know I should be doing, right? And C, the things that I decide to do in my schedule I don't do as well as I would like to or I know I can. Surely some of that relates with you, right? One, you've got to negotiate, okay? Two, you find yourself saying no to things that you wish you could have said yes to, I'm like, you know, just spending time with your church family in different ways. I like to serve more. I like to volunteer. I like to be more involved with my life group. But I have to say no because of busyness, okay? Um, but then also when we actually take time to do things, I mean, when do we really get to stop and really meditate on how we want to do a thing? Like a simple remodel or construction project in the house, man, where you really get to stop and think and draw it out and, spend, and really cr- create what, what's needed and what you want. We're typically flying by the seat of our pants. Right, and this thing needs to be fixed. This light bulb needs to be fixed. Uh, We make do with what we have. Now, here's why I think that that's a distortion of what God created. You can't have dominion over things when things rule your life and calendar. Dominion implies stewardship, and so in the busyness of my life, I'm I'm losing my dominion over my life. Would you agree with that? I'm I'm losing that position of stewardship over my life because I've succumbed to busyness. And so I don't lead well, I don't produce well, I say no to really important things. And I'm confessing this to you, I do this in my life. I have sometimes have to say no to visiting somebody in the hospital because at any given moment, there's three or four people in the hospital and, and I have to make hard decisions based on where I've gotta be next and which one when, when I can get to. And, and so it's not that I don't want to, it's that I'm saying no, what, and what am I saying? I don't really have dominion over my schedule. So just in the simplicity of living daily lives, this has come undone. And if you, um, we, we're, watching, we're watching Downton Abbey in our household. And, uh, and I think this is a decent example. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's fun. But um, the, uh, I'm not going to get into why you should watch it. However, it's, it's early 20th century. And so in, in this culture near London, you still have social classes. And so the, the person who owns the house kind of rules, and they refer to them as Lord, right, uh, and he has authority. But when you watch this, this show, and I think it's somewhat accurate, that man or that woman who lead the household have time. They're never stressed over busyness. Somebody else takes care of all the planning and the work and, and, and all that stuff, okay? Now, again, this is not a perfect example. But when we take the people out of it and we see creation, creation is meant to serve us. So he says, you're going to use this stuff for food. You're going to have authority over this. Go manage creation. Now, not abuse it, okay, um, not, not in, in disgrace, but in a way that creation itself can bear the glory of God. So I, I, I think that um, we've got to be cautious too when we talk about um, going green or not going green being a conservative or liberal issue. Um, I don't think that it should be. I think there should be a certain sense of when I go, when I the way I treat the world around me directly bears weight on how I'm reflecting the glory of God. So I teach my, my kiddos not to litter from an early age. It's against the law. But primarily because I teach them, we don't want to mess up God's glory. So Hudson's like the, the litter police. You see somebody throw something out the window. He freaks out. And, uh, and, and hopefully it's not because he just doesn't want them to get a ticket, but because they're, they're defacing, Right? However, creation was there to serve us. So it's not that we become so green that, right, that creation itself gets to dominate and rule our lives. That's the, that's the wrong balance in this equation. But to say, I want, the, I want God's creation to reflect his glory. And so I'm given dominion and stewardship over that. And, and parents, you know, the, the busyness causes that to come undone for us. When do we even have time to stop and explain that to our kids? Because we're so stinking busy. I mean, I wonder how much of our, if you were to calculate the conversations we have with family members, face-to-face, on the phone, or in the car, I wonder how those ratios would break down. We were, we were created to have face-to-face community in our relationships, but because of this busyness and this mass chaos of our lives, we don't have time to do what we were designed to do. So community then becomes the side project or the multitask or the thing we try to get done while we're doing. And, 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 I, and I love Siri. You can talk and she sends texts. And then sometimes she gets mad at you. Has Siri ever gotten mad at you? I mouthed off the other day. I was with Cam and Brian about trying to find this location. She's like, I can't find it. So what do you want me to do? I'm like, honestly, I just want you to find the place. And she's like, now, now. we got this relationship with things now, right? She's not a real person. What does our world come to? Now, I'm sorry. I, I got bogged down in that. So let's talk for just a minute. Here's a really important conversation that I want us to understand. Our inspiration for glorifying God does not come from the mandate to do it. Just track with me your inspiration, your desire, your want to glorify God will never come from the mandate to do it. It just won't. Second to that, the, the inspiration, the desire to glorify God will never come from an expectation to do it. Just because God expects it, just because God says do it, will, will never cause you to glorify God. So let me help you with this. Here's where your inspiration, your desire comes from to glorify God. It is the glory of God itself. The glory of God itself inspires a desire to glorify God. So when we think about our struggle as we live our lives, some moments maybe we're doing a better job, others we're not. How can I become more consistent reflecting God's glory? It's not going to come from us reminding ourselves of the, of the rules. It's not. Or some expectation or that we disappointed God. It's going to come from seeing the glory of God yourself. That in God, even in His creation, we see something majestic, beautiful, magnificent. And then because of that, we bask. I love that word, bask. If you're basked in the sun, we're going to start doing it here in a couple months, and white people are going to start turning brown because we've been basking in the sun, okay? Isn't that odd? I'm sorry, it just is. That in every spring, white people start turning brown. They want to be more brown. Like, anyway. I just don't, I don't get it. Okay. We'll get into that later. The beautiful of all of our colors displaying the glory of God but it's funny how we want to be like somebody else and, you know, and, and, and then, oh, anyway, okay, so let's move on. So here, here it is. So when we begin to see the beauty of God's glory in our creation and even in himself, then what we want to do is we want to bask in it, right? We want to sit in his glory, sit in his presence, sit in his goodness, sit in his mercy, sit in his grace. And therefore, we begin to reflect to the created around the world around us, him, I mean, that's what it means to be an image bearer of God. Because we sit, we bask, we meditate on his goodness, his glory. We don't read the Bible to become theologians. We don't read the Bible to become smarter. We read the the Bible because in it we see the glory of God. In it we see the descriptions of his goodness. That's basking in the glory of God. You want to bask in the glory of God? Go read the Psalms. Go read the Psalms and bask in the glory of God. Now, John introduces Jesus this way so in John 1:14 the word becomes flesh and dwells among us and in him we have seen his glory the glory is of the one son from the father full of grace and truth just meditating on Jesus and spending time reading about Jesus and spending time in conversation with Jesus you're basking in his glory That's why whenever we do take time to spend time in the word and have a quiet time, we go, the rest of my day just goes so much better. It's not because the Bible's a good luck charm. It's because in that brief moment, you've taken intentional time to stop and be in the presence of God. And allow him to speak to you and over you and in you. And then the rest of your day tends to go a little bit different. The idea is not that we'd stop for one brief moment and go, boom, there's God. And then shut the compact case. But that we would strive in every moment of every day to be that reflection of the glory of God to the people around us in every work decision, every discipline decision with our kids, even in our choices we make when we pull into a parking lot. Let me ask you this. Taking the nearest place to the front door at Walmart that you can find, is that reflecting the glory and the goodness of God? You go, well, I don't know. Let me ask you this. What's the other option? To pass it up on behalf of somebody else, either an older person or maybe a handicapped person who. All the handicap places are taken. It doesn't matter. Just placing somebody before yourself and parking further out and walking, right, you see the difference, can be a small, okay, just a small decision where you're reflecting the goodness and the grace of God and you're placing others before yourself. So in the simple decisions of our life, we determine, are we reflecting God's glory to creation or are we looking at ourselves, or reflecting creation's image back to itself? All right. So we've talked about um, this idea of these distortions. Um, I want to read for you now something from the New Testament that I think will make so much more sense to you. It does to me. Okay, it's the opening of Romans, Romans 1. Paul wrote this, and arguably the Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant theologians who ever wrote anything in Scripture. It's arguable, but it's where I tend to land. I have a lot of respect for Paul's grasp of theology, the understanding of who God is. So the opening of Romans, Paul starts on a pretty cosmic level, big, broad level, with some of his statements. And so understanding what we were created to do and then understanding how that's become distorted, I understand Romans chapter 1 a little bit better. So just a few verses from Romans 1, starting in 18, okay, understanding all we've talked about today. This is what Paul says is the condition now of man. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of men. Now we're going to come back to wrath. We just sang about wrath. Wrath. Now, we we have hope because the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus. But without a cross, without a Savior, without a hero in the story, right, we have unleashed wrath of God against mankind. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Okay, so verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Do you know who the them is there? Mankind. It's the same them that was created, So, who God is, right, has been plainly displayed to them. And then, specifically, he says this verse 20 For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since when? The creation of the world. Stop right there. So, in the creation of the world, God didn't just say, Go reflect my glory and give us nothing. He showed us his his eternal nature, he showed us his divine power. He said, Go reflect this. So ever since the creation of the world, look at this. In the things that have been made, the creation around us, we are able to look at that and point to that and go, look at the glory of God, his goodness, his His eternal nature, his divine power. In that rock, in my finger, in my ability to say point and it points, right? This is created by God. I'm able to see his divine power and his eternal nature in my fingertips. And the fact that my fingernails grow and replace themselves as I, right, whittle them off. Because this is what I believe Paul is saying. So that they, being us, were without excuse. We can't say we had nothing to reflect. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him. There's that idea of reflecting, right? They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. So they didn't do that. They weren't positioned themselves as reflectors of his glory. Instead, here's what they did. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Remember how I was reflecting that light to resemble God's glory? The reflection of who God is has become dim to the created world because we've become futile in our thinking. That's the description of this image bearing. The image of God has become dim in us. Verse 22 claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So they exchanged that reflection of God for something else. Look at this for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Isn't that what we just said? Instead of reflecting the glory of God to creation, right? We've exchanged that reflection, that image of God, for the image of created things. And so any given one of us looks more like the created world than we do the God who created it. It's how we identify ourselves a lot of times what neighborhood we live in, right, what school district we go to. These created things of man become our identity instead of this beautiful, eternal, powerful God. So this is what I believe Paul is saying, and then he's going to go on. Um, We're going to pick up in 24 at the end of the message next week um, because even in our relationship, even in the the SEX relationship between man and woman, those distortions that were inherently created to display his his beautiful, unified um, image has become distorted. So the very fabric of our existence, I believe Paul is saying, has come unraveled. And we're not just off track, we're in reverse track mode. Now here's the good news. All we've done so far this morning is talk about what's wrong, what's gone wrong. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us some, something remarkably hopeful about this distorted image that we, we exist in. Ephesians 4, last verse of the morning. Verse 20, uh, let's start in twenty. Two, talking about here, about being taught about Jesus, verse 22 says this, since you've been taught about Jesus, to put off your old self. If you keep wearing your old self, you're gonna keep reflecting your own glory, you're gonna keep reflecting your desire for things. So put, take off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and, it's, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23, and be renewed, in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, look at this. This is what Jesus gives us. Created after what? The likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. If that isn't Paul saying, God is going to redo what has become undone, I don't know what is. He's saying, when you trust Christ, here's what happens to you. Your old self is taken off, and you put on a new self, which, is the, which was the, the, the image you were created to bear in the beginning. So, so Christ followers, okay, first of all, like why do we keep trying to unzip this new self and put the old self back on? Why are we still walking around in self-centeredness and a lust for things? And why are things still dominating our lives and our schedules and our priorities? That's the old self. Paul says, listen, if, you, if you've been taught in Jesus and you've received him, you've got a new self now. It's who you are. It's who you are. Now, here's the hope for anybody who is not a Christian today. The wrath of God was satisfied on Jesus on the cross and his death and his resurrection. And so how do we get to this point where we, our image can be restored, our purpose can be restored back to its created position? Jesus would say this, believe me. Believe and you will be changed. We are saved by faith and faith alone. So here's the good news for you today. If you're a person who is struggling with purpose and why we're here and what does my life even matter, listen, you're not gonna have the answer to that until Jesus restores your image. And, and you don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops and fill out an application and give a bunch of money and wear all the right clothes and listen to the right radio stations and play the whole Christian American Christian game. You humble yourself before God and say, I believe it. I believe the story. I believe that you sent your son to die for my sins on the cross and he rose from the grave. That by believing on him, I would have forgiveness. That sin would be undone in my life. That shame and guilt would no longer have any place. And that I could have my righteousness restored before a righteous and holy God. God wants to do that in your life today. To walk out of here with with shame and guilt in your pocket is to say no to God. That's on you, not him. He says, I've given you the place to drop it right here in my presence, and I'll undo it. I don't care how bad you think you've been. I don't care why, because you're going to take off the old self, all of it. And God's ready to undo the shame and the guilt in your life and put on the new self. Let's pray together.